Hello and welcome to Be With Champions. I'm your host, Greg Bennett. And in today's conversation, I chat with Christian Blumenfeld from Bergen, Norway, an up-and-coming uh, triathlete star. He's uh, won several races, but he's missed a consistency around the world right now. And, and my prediction is that we're going to be seeing him on top of the, the podium for many, many years. Um, and I was really keen to get him on this show, especially leading up to the Olympics, although the Olympics have been postponed, uh, as I do see him as one of the strong medal favorites, if not the gold medal. Uh, for Tokyo Olympics. And this is just a wonderful conversation with a young athlete that's a complete open book. He talks about his VO2 max testing and his results that he gets from that and his lactic testing and and the very scientific approach that they're having within Norway uh, to get the most out of the Norwegian athletes, of which there's, there's quite a few as we talk about in this episode. Some really great takeaways in this one of what we can all be doing to sort of optimize our training um, for the sport and sleep and recovery and, and those kinds of things. And, you know, it hasn't been all smooth sailing for him, but he's had some, some big wins now. He's now, you know, he's laid down the fastest time ever for an Ironman 70.3. And, and a lot of that has to do with, sure, he's got some great genetics, as he talks about but also the style of training and the way they're preparing for these races. So fantastic episode. I really enjoyed this one, uh, talking to this next generation. And uh, if you're loving the show or enjoying it, please share it, um, subscribe, and uh, you know, give me your feedback or any reviews. I'll get back to each and every one of you when I, when I can as quickly as possible. Um, I really appreciate that. So um, yeah, uh, enjoy this one. I certainly did. Thanks. All right, the next generation of triathletes are here and they're powerful, strong and capable. And they're being led by this man. He's an aggressive racer on the bike and run. He loves to train hard and race even harder. When he's on the start line, his competitors know it's going to be flat out for the entire race. He's been a consistent podium and top five finisher, but I believe the wind is changing and we're going to see him winning far more than we've seen over the next few years. He cemented himself as one of the strong medal favorites for Tokyo Olympics whenever they happen to take place. His most recent results include winning the grand final for the World Triathlon Series in Lausanne, Switzerland, running away from the very best, including Mola, Louis, Gomez, and Johnny Brownlee. He holds the world's best time for the 70.3 distance with a three-hour, 25 minutes and 21 seconds at the Bahrain 70.3 in, July, in um, 2019. I'm delighted to have on Bewa Champions from Bergen, Norway, Mr. Christian Blumenfeld. How are you, mate? I'm good. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Yeah. Well, are, are you in Norway now or where are you? Yeah, I'm back in Bergen. I, I'm supposed to be in Sierra Nevada now. So like two weeks ago, I traveled up to the mountains just before kind of the whole madness, uh, the, the craziness started and exploded with the coronavirus mm. so mm. i thought that i came up in the altitude just in time so i could be there by myself training as normal mm. and then uh, after a week i just had to uh, book a new ticket back home to make sure that i wasn't stuck there for forever <laughs> <laughs> so no, I have, uh, uh, just under a week left of quarantine back home so uh, it's not too bad 
Yeah, you've been managing okay. Are you on Zwift with everybody else or the indoor trainers and stuff like that? Are you are you able to get out of the house at all or are you guys on complete lockdown? No, I think we're quite lucky. Like, even though I'm in quarantine, I'm allowed to go outside by myself. So, for mm. example, I can go out and do some running uh, as long as I do it by myself and not going to the busy places mm. and doing a lot of Zwift riding. And, mm. uh, yeah, so it's not too bad. Obviously, we have no swimming pool. But uh, mm. I think there is basically no one in Europe who has it at the moment. No, I think pools have been – I'm even in South Florida here in, in the US at the moment and uh, all the pool facilities are all shutting down everywhere and uh, the, the house that we're in has a tiny pool out the back but it's it's kind of – it's more like an ice bath than it is at a pool at the moment. So it's it's good for recovery but, but not so much swimming laps. Um, yeah, so – Tell me a little bit about, I, I, I want to start the show by looking at 2019 because actually I want to start before I even go there. I just, you know, I'm a huge fan of yours. I, I Out of a lot of the athletes that are coming through right now and I've, I've had a lot of great guests on this show, but but I'm a fan of yours for the number one reason. I love the style in which you you race. I love the, the aggressiveness in which you approach your racing and uh, th- there's a no fear attitude and you just keep laying it down and laying it down and laying it down. And when I look back at my own career, I, I like to kind of think when I watched the racing that my the way I raced was very similar to the way you raced. I like to think that. I don't know. Everybody listening to this might say, hang on, Greg, you weren't nearly as tough or as strong as, as Christian. But I, I like to think that the way you race is how I raced. And so when I watch the World Series races or the 70.3s, I, I really look at it and go, wow, I you know, you inspire me with the, with the way you approach it. So I just wanted to get that out now. And uh, and that was one of the real reasons I wanted you on this show, just because I, I am a fan of what you're doing. Well, thank you very much. <laughs> I, think, I think it's like, uh, for me, like going to a race, I think it's all about trying to do, even though it's just a small chance, I just want to play that chance to see if I can win the race. And yeah, kind of living, no regrets, mate. Yeah, no regrets. I love that. And uh, so tell me a little bit, let's go back to 2019. I It was an incredible year for you because 2017 and 2018, for people that don't know, you, you were very, very consistent in those years um, with plenty of second places, top fives. You were there, thereabouts, even a second at the Rotterdam Grand Final back in 2017, which was an amazing race in itself. But the wins, you were having wins, but they weren't, on the World Series stage, and, and I think it was almost like, oh, when is that? When is that breakthrough win going to happen? And then 2019, tell me about that because it was kind of a rough year in terms of consistency, but then you finished it off with such a bang. Yeah, I think 2019 was maybe one of my hardest years so far. Mm. Uh, I came came out of uh, a 2018 season where I felt like I was just missing that win. Like I was mm. getting a lot of podiums, but I didn't really have that win. And I was also outside of the podium overall in, in the World Series ranking in 2018. So I had mm. like a really good, solid winter going into 2019. Mm. And then on the, on the way there, I also raced in Bahrain, did the 329. Mm. Uh, and then I kept going, going into Dubai trying to go for a triple crown as well. And then uh-huh. just like on the travel down to Dubai in February, early early 2019, I just kind of start cramping up. So 
uh, I came into Dubai 70.3 without, like, I was standing on the start line and knowing that if I can make it onto the bike, then, then I'm kind of <laughs> fine because I was just really feeling like my, my legs was just really pumped up after the travel. And I think that kind of destroyed my leg for maybe three or four months after. I'm not really sure what's happened there, but like my legs mm. and quads was just smashed. And that took me like a few months to recover from. So basically the whole like first half of the year last year was kind of just a struggle. Wow. So then it started losing up again, like maybe two weeks before Montreal. And then that's like in June. So uh, like the training didn't really, my body didn't really respond like it used to be. So mm. that was kind of a scary kind of uh, process to go through. But then uh, when it first started losing up again, it really started feeling great. Mm. But then again, I had, <laughs> when I was finally race ready, then I came into races like Hamburg and crashed out. And then I was training for maybe another five weeks in the altitude preparing for a Tokyo test event mm. in the shape of my life. And then I crashed out again. <laughs> so, and then I had like another two weeks to go into the Lausanne race mm. and I was feeling really, really fit. Then, and I was really keen to kind of perform and kind of show not just to myself, but kind of to everyone around that I'm also not just saying that I'm in shape, but I'm actually in great shape. Mm. And then uh, it was kind of a relief to kind of just take Lausanne with a bang. But I was also looking at that weekend with Lausanne and Nice mm. as a kind of a, a good opportunity if I'm winning, if I'm able to win both. That's kind of mm. saving the whole, that's kind of making the 2019 season to be a mm. great year again. So um, it it ended up well kind of with the win and fourth place and some good Super League racing. But uh, overall, it was a really challenging year. Yeah. I think I, I look at your 2019 win at Lausanne as one of the all-time big race wins. I thought it was a spectacular race. And uh, and again, I, I don't like to do it this on the show, but I saw the comparisons of I used every downhill I ever could to try and make the gaps happen on that run. And uh, I had a leg turnover that would allow me to just free fall down down the, the hills to allow me to open that gap. And when I watched the coverage of you just exploding on those downhills and opening up the gaps over the likes of you know Mario Mola and Javier Gomez and Alaza and, and Vincent Louis, you know, the very best runners in the world that we know are running 29, you know, for 10K when they need to. And then you, you're just sprinting away from them and, and making it happen. And you could see there was a it was more than just one race to you. You could see that it was you needed to make up for the year you'd had and the frustrations you'd had early. You needed to have a big win because you'd been so consistent for so long, for so many years. I mean, not that long. I mean, really three to four years, but it was just that real big breakthrough race. And it must have been great just relief to some degree to cross that line and, and lift the finishing tape. Oh, yeah, for sure. I think you could... Yeah. If you see the footage there on the last few hundred meters, you can see kind of how much it meant. Mm. And it was also the fact that when you're going through so many podiums, people start <laughs> asking like, are you never <laughs> yes. going to win, you know? Yeah, you, you yeah. You get your first win. And uh, uh, yeah. so to kind of just check that out and uh, 
uh, have it in the box now, and now I can just kind of start counting wins instead of yeah. getting first one <laughs> that's true <laughs> counting wins i like that it was funny because i during the 90s and this is before you were born well you were born late 90s but i was known as like one of the world's most consistent athletes and on this show i often talk about how i didn't have the confidence in my 20s or i was missing a few pieces all the way through my 20s and and I'd, I'd win the occasional race i think i won my first world cup which was like what a world series was um uh, when I was about 25 in, in, in Monte Carlo and then it took another couple of years to win Sydney World Cup. And, but it really wasn't until I was kind of in my early 30s and when I won the World Series a couple of times that I started to get this ownership of and the confidence that comes from winning. I don't think you're going to wait nearly that long. My prediction is now that you've had a real good taste for it at Lausanne that the world is going to watch out. But for me, I had to truly learn how to win over time. And and, and that was, I maybe I was a slow learner, but it took me a while to get to that, that belief that I could win more often. But I think with the way that you won Lausanne, and, and what I mean by that was that you were there in the swim, you were once again, one of the powerhouses on the bike doing a lot of the work. You were toughening up the race and and then you, again, toughened up the run the whole way through that the way that it wasn't a fluke, you know, it was you were the strongest and the fittest guy in the world on that day and you are now one of the major players and like I said at the top of the show and, and probably one of the big favorites for, for a medal in, in Tokyo and hopefully that gold medal. Yeah, for sure. And I think... Uh uh the course and the and, and the condition and everything in Lausanne was was just fitting uh fitting me perfect we we did mm-hmm. the world cup the year before so we had kind of uh, a clue on how we could kind of tackle that race as a team mm-hmm. so uh i got help from both gustav and casper uh, and also martin and really like uh, a good job there to kind of drag the pace very hard so mm. For what we tend to see in races like that is that because of the hill is so steep and so hard, mm. a lot of people is just kind of sprinting up the hill, mm-hmm. and then they're getting a long recovery phase down again. Mm. But, uh, we, I thought that if if we were able to keep the pressure uh, over the top down again and straight into the next hill, then it would be mm. more a sixty-minute hard struggle for everyone. <laughs> <laughs> and that would kind of suit me more than those kind of uh, fast, uh, hard uh, three-minute acceleration up and down the hill because that's mm. really suffering me out. So mm. I thought that if we could kind of tackle that race in a different approach. Mm. I want to talk about your team of Norwegians and, and the, the Norwegian train is what's become known a little bit later in the show and, and also your training and, and, and why you want a you know, 60-minute hard bike rather than just little intervals throughout. But for now, I, I um, well, a couple of things before I move on because I do want to touch on uh, your travel into Dubai because that's interesting to me right now. And were you traveling? How do you travel economy or are you, are you putting yourself up the front of the plane going to these events? Uh, well, going into that race, it was kind of uh, a mess because I had, I were down in Las Pajitas and the Canary Island. Mm-hmm. And I supposed to, I had kind of a deal with the Bahrain Endurance team. But mm-hmm. then in the very last moment, the Federation did everything they could to deny the deal. Mm-hmm. And so then like today before the travel, I had to kind of sort my own tickets out and uh, 
it ended up being a long travel, like straight from Canary Island to Copenhagen to Oslo to Istanbul to oh. Dubai. And then I arrived there like less than two days before the race. Oh. So I think that was kind of uh, the tricky part and yeah. uh, traveling on budget, <laughs> budget, limited budget as well. So, yeah. um, oh, so here you've gone from being put potentially on the Bahrain endurance team where they were going to have you travel well, I, I assume, maybe up at the front of the plane a little bit, even on the long-haul flights. I don't know how, how Mac is dealing, doing those deals, but definitely you would have had some reasonable backing and, and some financial support to suddenly you were, you were hopping all over the place uh, in economy. And do you, do you ever fear that it might have been like a deep vein thrombosis or you know DVT or anything like that that was going on in your legs? Did you ever get that checked out? No, I never checked it out, but I, I could kind of see that my legs was kind of swollen. Mm. Like uh, my, I couldn't recognize my own quads. It was just like a watermelon. So uh, I was I was hoping that if I was able to make it through the swim, and I could kind of use a ninety k bike to just flush flush mm. out the legs, <laughs> <laughs> and hope. I thought, okay, that that might be my way to kind of take take this uh, race. Yeah, <laughs> I wasn't even able to get on my bike. I, um, I got through the swim, and then mm. in transition, my quads quads were just cramping so badly up that it took me two hours on the massage table to be able to stand on the feet again. Mm. So, um, that's scary, mate. Worst pain I've ever had in the legs. Yeah, that's that's really scary. I think I, I've had a couple of friends that have had the D- DVT type you know, things and happened to them, and that can be. Very scary. I don't know if that's what you you have, but <laughs> I encourage you to make sure you you stay on top of that. Especially, you know, with the, the you know you've got a long career ahead of you. You don't need anything like that. And that's also the kind of the challenging thing with uh, like you know all the training from mm. from being in the shape of my life, leaving that training camp, going into a race mm. that's supposed to be kind of a walk in the park, and then just being smashed. Yeah. And then you you never really like the traveling and and the dealing with the time zone is really hard. Oh, it's brutal, mate. It's it's brutal and I think, you know, my wife and I, you know, we would, you know, she was racing as well and um we used to travel the world. We we get to the point we we we'd set up two home bases, one southern hemisphere, one northern hemisphere and and we'd set up training camps. But when we travel, and I've said on this show previous is is basically the way we would set up our our um travel is 15% of our income, one five, not five oh, one five percent of our income would go towards travel. And so, you know, if we'd had a good year and it was a six figure year before or whatever, you know, you you could start to really figure out your travel so you could travel well. And that's, you know, lying on the flatbed seats. But then we'd have our compression socks um and we'd even travel with the compression boots sometimes on the on the long ones. And it was trying to make sure that those legs can stay you know upright uh, so the blood flow wasn't getting stuck then we kept moving around the plane whatever it takes but it's hard when you've got you know the 10 to 15 races all around the world from 70.3s to the world series and everything else and you, you're trying to be fresh at every event 
Um, later in our year, I just started traveling with my own sort of support staff that would, you know, work the body and everything else, both on the plane and as soon as we got off. And and that'll come to you, I'm sure, as, you know, you, you get the bigger sponsorships and, and more wins behind you as uh, that reinvesting in yourself so these things maybe don't happen as much for you. And you mentioned the the Triple Crown. Well, tell, tell the audience a little bit about that because I, I didn't even know that was still going. Uh, I'm not sure if it's still this year, but last year they had it. Yeah. Uh, and that's mean that if you're winning the three Triple Crown races, which is Dubai, uh, the 70.3 World Championship, and finishing off with uh, a win in Bahrain, you'll gotcha. win the $1 million prize. Wow. Okay. So, so that was uh, kind of uh, a part of my plan last. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, um, so having those sore legs cost you a million dollars, or was that the final race or the first race? Oh, it was the first one. Okay, so, okay, okay, okay. And, and uh, but I didn't, I didn't win in this, so uh, I wouldn't have like you, you need to win all three in the same mm. in that order to have. Gotcha. The Gotcha, gotcha. I understand. Yeah, I, I did know that that was going on a few years ago, and I think Dan- Daniela Riff might have might have pulled it off um, uh, maybe three, four years ago. And uh, yeah, I, I knew they were putting up some some big money. So I wanted what I'd like to do now is just wind the clock right back and, and get an idea of when did you sort of first find endurance sports or find that you had a passion for endurance endurance sports. I think I've always been a big fan of endurance sport. Like I've always been active. I've always been running around. And uh, I started with swimming when I was seven or eight. Mm. Even though that's my weakness, that's that's, <laughs> uh, that's my background. So uh, I've always been kind of very active. I've really enjoyed the training. Mm. And in swimming, I maybe enjoyed the training more than and going to competitions. Because I was just enjoying to really train hard and going to training camps, mm. and uh, in, in the same time as I didn't really success in swimming, I was probably among the best runners at my age in the country. <laughs> so, somehow, so at, at one stage, uh, my swim coach just advised me to try something else, like maybe triathlon or open water swimming because he understood that I would never reach my potential in the pool. Mm. But I was maybe the one, that kid who was just uh, most kind of uh, enthusiastic at the training sessions and really enjoyed training. That mm. guy was jumping first in the pool, but I was still kind of slowest in the group. So uh, he gave me like a list of different events that um, he thought I could try out. And one of them uh, ended up being a local triathlon race. And I was back in 2008. Mm -hmm. So I turned up there and uh, won it (laughs) at the age of 14. Mm. And a few months later, I got contacted by one of the father to the guys in the national team now. And he wanted to start up the youth national team. Because back then we had no national team in Norway. So he wanted to start off from scratch with young athletes uh, around this uh, son age and kind of build up the team from youth to junior to elite. So potentially we could have uh, uh, a team that could qualify for the 2020 Olympics. Wow. So this is, this is like a journey we've started off 
almost 10 years ago or more than mm-hmm. 10 years ago. So oh, back in 2009, uh, this, this, this father, he was like searching all over the internet and he found four guys wow. in the country who was willing to kind of join the national team. And uh, I had done one, one race, his son had done a couple. <laughs> one guy was kind of uh, also have done a few races. And then the fourth guy hadn't done any races, but he was just saying he could run. Is that the four that we see racing now? Is it uh, almost the Gustav and Casper came in the year after and two years after. Mm. So, so when we started, it wasn't really about uh, finding the biggest talent. We were just looking after the ones who was willing to do the job <laughs> and was kind of keen to try out triathlon and who was uh, uh, dreaming about the Olympics. And then from there, we took it and been building it up. And then in 2010... Uh, I was starting to get like some good uh, progress, and then uh, to take it a step further, I got in contact or I got help from my coach, who is still coaching me today, Aurel. Mm-hmm. And since then, we have been, uh, uh, yeah, working together for almost ten years now. I I find that extraordinary. What was the the dad's name of, that you you said? It's hmm? Stan Gunnarsson. I, the, I think that there's a lot of federations out there that might want to employ this guy for their talent ID programs of, of, <laughs> of headhunting and finding the best the best youth uh, and and developing because that's extraordinary that he's gone out and and been fairly successful in in I mean I know Norway is a population probably what is it five million people yeah, five. And, and to to identify talent of one race no race maybe a couple of races and say, hey, that these guys could be pretty good at this sport is really is really quite phenomenal. I think, you know, I know talking with Triathlon Australia and, and USA Triathlon and some of the bigger federations that their number one thing is, well, how do we find the new talent? How do we find the new talent? And here's a guy in Norway that's gone, actually, you can just look around the corner here and there's a kid that's winning a local race and I'll just what, pick him up. I think that's wonderful. What's actually a bit funny back then, the reason why Gustav didn't make the national team in the beginning was because he didn't come from a swimming background. And <laughs> or, or philosophy were that if you are not coming from swimming, you can never learn how to swim. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So even though he was a great cyclist and runner, he didn't make the national team the first first year just because of that. But then well, he was able to step up his game on the, in, the, in the pool and now he's doing quite uh, fine. I think some of these federations have got out of control with uh, how they're how you get onto these teams. I'll never forget training with Javier Gomez in, and we were in Noosa, Australia, and I think I can't remember the year it was, but if I said 2010, around that kind of era, and um, and he said, "Greg, I, I have to be back in Spain uh, for this test." I said, "What test?" And and by this stage, he'd already won a couple of world titles, you know, and. Uh, yeah. And and I said, well, what what test is that? He said, oh, I've got to go swim a, a fifteen hundred for the the Spanish National Federation to prove that I can be on the national team. I said, what? 
I said, you're the world champion. He said, yeah, but it's part of their protocol. <laughs> I was like, so here you have it where someone like Javier Gomez is still having to prove it. And and I looked back. It was funny because I don't think I was ever very good swimmer, biker, or runner separately, but you put me together and I was a reasonable triathlete. And a lot of the times that I see that these federations are putting out that if you want to be on our national team on the gold program, you've got to be able to swim a whatever, 16 minute, 1500 or, a, you know, run a 28, 30, 10K or whatever it was that I was like, who in the world is ever going to qualify for the, these teams? And one thing I loved about our sport is it's, it's triathlon. It's mm. not swimming, biking or running. It's it, to be a triathlete is not, like the way you race, you're racing as a triathlete. You're making it a two-hour all-out, I'm going to punish the crap out of you guys and whoever is the last man standing is going to win. I don't care if you can run a 28.30 because you're not going to run it after you've been trying to bike with me for, for an hour. So I like the whole sport. I like it being we look at it as one that you're a triathlete. And I think it's funny when you talk about Gustav couldn't make a, the, the national team and, and here he is now, 70.3 world champion and, uh, you know, an extraordinary athlete in his own right. So when did you realize, was it when, was it winning that first race when you were 14 in 2008 that you were like, huh, I got some talent and strength here or did that sort of come gradually over time or was it at that moment? I think it came gradually. Like uh, back back then, I was just young and didn't really know what the sport was. Like uh, I, I didn't know even about the Beijing Olympics. I didn't watch it. Uh, I was after that. I was kind of starting to search a little bit on YouTube to kind of <laughs> see if I could find like <laughs> what is actually triathlon. You know. Yeah, that blows my mind. I'm sorry. I'm sitting here. I was almost retired by then. I'm kind of like, wow. It just blows my mind. Yeah. And it wasn't really too much to find about the Beijing Olympics either. So I couldn't find like the whole race, uh, <laughs> like the two hour coverage. So it was just like a few moments or a few minutes clips. Mm. And then the 2019, we did like starting traveling around and going to Switzerland for some youth races. And then we kind of got like the feeling of what is actually uh, triathlon. Because also mm. at that time, all the races at home were non-drafting. Mm. So when I was 15, 16, we did sprint Olympic distance non-drafting races. I think that's a good thing, mate. I mean, I I grew up before draft legal was even a, an option. So in even my first world championships in 94 was a non-drafting world championships. And then the sport got into the Olympics. And one of the things they said is we can't afford to have any, you know, drafting, who drafted, who didn't draft type discussions come the Olympics. And so they made it draft legal, which all of us guys were like, what? You know, it was like devastating. But I think we learned our trade in our teenage years in in the non-drafting that I think made us even better draft legal and triathletes for the future. I think there's a real strength that came from doing the non-drafting in our youth that th I'm not seeing now because now everything for the, the youth is all draft legal that I don't think they're as strong for the entire event as we were because we had that ability to to do the full two-hour race on our own and, and maybe that was a, a gift to you without even realising. Yeah, I think you are forced to do the job there on the bike to prepare mm. yourself. Mm. And uh, I think what what I see by a lot of the juniors I race against, 
and also the juniors today is that because the bike doesn't really matter when they're racing youth and junior mm. and they're just what they're training is all out uh, 800 swim and then expecting to have 20k pedaling mm. around and then it's kind of running 5k with fresh legs mm. and to go from there to actually having to work that mm. middle middle part is really hard See, so, this is why I like you. This, this, I knew there was a reason, and I, and I think it is because you, you've almost, without even knowing what the sport was in 2008, 2009, you, you are an old soul. You, you, you were a 1980s, 1990 uh, triathlete that's just been reborn in this era. I think you uh, – because I, it's so refreshing to hear that it, for, for me personally, and I think probably a lot of my listeners also that – uh, I like to know that the, there's guys out there that are still like, no, this is a triathlon and we're going to make it swim, bike, run all the way through. That's brilliant. Yeah. I love it. Um, also- so let's move on just to when, when was it when you were like, okay, I've got some talent. I've got some, you know, real strengths in this sport. I'm enjoying it. I love the training. Was there a moment when you said, all right, let's go all in with everything I have and let's live a life of intent uh, and be the greatest triathlete I can be? Uh, I think that's what, when I started working with my coach. I remember the first meeting I had with him back in 2010 when he asked me, like, uh, what's your ambition? What's your goal? And I told mm. him, I want to win the Olympics in 2020. That was like my goal back then when I was mm. 16, when I met him for the first time. And that has kind of been the, the, the standard or the, uh, for what we have to re- re- uh, kind of put down, the kind of what, what work we have to put down is kind of have mm. to be equal to actually becoming Olympic champion. Mm. So I think uh, from there, then on, it's been all out or all in for, for, for triathlon. Even mm. though I had to combine it with uh, doing some school in the first few years, mm. since 2013 it has been basically just triathlon. Mm. I love that. I love that you the fact that you were you were bold enough to to sort of put it out there and just say, and and it wasn't like a teenage dream, you know. It wasn't like just putting it out there and then just hoping. It was it was following through with the goal. I think that's. It's one thing to have a goal, but it's another one to to put the goal there and actually take the actions and the steps towards it. And and Arild, is that how I pronounce his name? Arild? Arild, yeah. Yeah, he, he's done just such phenomenal work with you and your teammates, Casper uh, Stormers and, and, and uh, Gustav Eden. And uh, I, think, I think there's a lot of coaches around the world just saying, wow, you know, the Norwegians are, are doing something right. And I'm sure he's been on numerous interviews and podcast shows with people just trying to dissect exactly what it is that you guys are doing. And, and when was it when Casper joined and Gustav joined you? Was that early on as well? It's like 2011. Mm. So, so it is almost 10 years ago I've been training with, uh, with them. <laughs> and they're also from the, the same town as I'm from. Yeah. We even went to the same uh, high school. So we are doing like most of our key sessions together like when we are at home in Bergen mm. so it's a kind of a good uh, environment 
That's fantastic. It reminds me a little bit. So in in Australia in the 90s, we had two big coaches. There was uh, Brett Sutton and Cole Stewart. And so all of us from Sydney went to either one of those coaches or Queensland if you're up with, with Cole Stewart. And, and we had big racing in Australia. It was live television and it was a big professional race series in the 90s. And and really, we we learned our craft through a lot of racing, but we also had these amazing squads with, you know, there was six or seven of us from Sydney and a couple from Queensland in their squad. And it was like we had these amazing training partners every weekend that we would then go race hard on, you know, um, during the weeks. And and we got better and better. And when we went on to the World Cup Series, which, you know, was in the Northern Hemisphere, so we'd have our big Australian summer of racing and go straight in the Northern Hemisphere. We just cleaned up because we were we were training with the best often and racing the best often that we we learnt our craft, and that's what it seems to me. You guys are doing what you've you've got a, as a collective group. You know where the bar is, and uh, you know the level. You know the standard every time you go and race. Like when you're going for a bike ride with with Gustav, you know. Well, hang on, he's he's the level now, and he's the same with you, and. And I think talking to Mario Mola in one of my previous episodes, the squad that you guys are up against is the Joel Filial squad with Vincent Louis, Mario Mola, um, and uh, amongst others. And they know where the standard is every time they go train. And so it almost has become this Norwegian training squad versus the Joel Filio squad and throw in a Brownlee and a, and a Gomez and and that's that's your top 10. You know? Yeah, that's right. So it's a, it's kind of an um, a race within the race there as well. Who mm. is getting the most uh, athletes inside the top ten mm. uh, from the different training squads? Yeah, that's that's brilliant. So tell me a little bit about your relationships and and your team of experts that you have around you. So you have, you know, I, I'm a big advocate for for building a team and having the right people around you because as much as it, it's an individual sport, we none of us can do it on our own. And um, tell me a little bit about, you know, the family support and, and the experts you've surrounded yourself with. So since we started, or I think we got into the Olympic team in 2014, and since then we have had like a good support there with like the gym trainers or uh to get like uh, exercises for the gym workouts and nutritionist mm. and all that kind of, that side of the uh, of the uh, support but then we also have like sports scientists now since 2016 who is analyzing and testing everything we do mm. and kind of giving us feedback on on what we need to adjust in the training and how we can kind of what's the limitation fitness-wise so we can kind of uh, improve that as well. Um, so I have my coach, obviously, and then sports scientist. We have a swimming coach here in Bergen who is uh, on the pool deck every day. Mm. And then I have uh, the gym coach and nutritionist. So that's basically it. Yeah, and do you is that all part of the Norwegian system, or is that a team that you've put together, or are you kind of as a Norwegian Olympic athlete, you kind of slot right in? And is Bergen where the Norwegian training center is? No, that's in Oslo, or the Olympic center is in Oslo. But mm. uh, all the triathlete or the kind of the, the national team bases, you can call mm. it in Bergen. Mm. Uh, 
and all of this kind of support I'm getting through the Olympic team and the, the national team. So it's uh, it's the same team as uh, both Gustav and Kasper has. Mm. And it looks to me like from from the little bit of homework I've done is that you get a lot of this science testing. You're doing you you train a lot to lactate. Am I correct? Yeah. Saying that. Yeah, and so and Arold is making sure. So are you doing that? Like how how often are you doing these lactic tests throughout each week? We go into the lab maybe every six to eight weeks. Wow. So then we do three days of testing with the scientist we love. And uh, this is like the bike test, for example, takes two and a half hours to complete. Wow. So it's a very long test, including um, uh, a standard warm-up and then uh, a long kind of test to get like a, a picture of the energy system. And then we finish wow. off with the view to max. So it's like a very, <laughs> so it's a very very demanding test, and we also do. Oh my like, god! We also do testing the lactate on the cooldown as well to get like uh, to find a way to improve or uh, what's the best way to kind of do a cooldown. Extraordinary. And, uh, and this since we're doing so many testing, you know, every six to every eight weeks we have a lot of uh, data to kind of compare and then we can see uh, if for example my view to max is dropping then we can put in a block of view to max training and then we can check again six weeks later and see if i'm improving or not or recovery I'm... sometimes i feel like the vo2 goes down when we're just flat and we're tired so wow you, you, if you also and since everything is so easy or easy to compare to what we do outside as i'm mm. as, when i'm riding in the lab i'm still riding on my own bike i'm just putting on on, on a turbo mm. and i'm mm. riding with my own equipment and i'm using my power meter for my pedals so it's all very easy to kind of um, what we're doing in the lab is very easy to take out in the field mm. and then we do the elected measuring as well out uh, outside of the lab so i find it very very easy to use what we are seeing in the lab in the daily training and i think that that's the key in our training um, uh, uh, philosophies that we're able to use what we actually see in the lab it's not just that we are doing that 1500 meter all-out swimming test and getting a fast pb but we're really understanding and seeing the picture of the energy system that's required in olympic distance triathlon that is fantastic. The amount of discipline that you've all got to be able to put that in place. I, and the, the fact that every six to eight weeks you're doing a VO2 max test is just – I had Nino, Nino Schurter on. We're doing now each huh? day. It's not just one VO2 max test. We're doing two now. So we're oh. doing first one VO2 max test on the bike and then five to ten minutes break and then another one. And then, oh. and then the day after – it's the same. It's the same in the pool swimming, and then oh the day my. after, it's the same in the lab on the run. Oh my goodness! Uh, I, I can't believe that, mate. I, I think I did my last VO two max test back in about nineteen ninety eight. And I was like, yeah, I don't think I want to do that ever again. And and he, I had uh, Nino Schurter on the show last week, and he basically 
He's the Olympic champion, mountain bike champion, and eight-time world mountain bike champion, just one of the all-time great cyclists in the world. And and I said to him, oh, it looks like you do a fair bit of tests. He said, oh, no, 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 just just twice a week, once at the sort of the start of the training block and once right before race season starts. And I said, oh, okay, okay. He said, no, I just, I hate them. He said, I never want to go back. If I, I need to let him know how many you're getting because I think all us athletes is one of those things when you, you put on that face mask and, and you suffer and you have somebody yelling in your ear to try and just get a little bit more and more out of yourself. It, it, it's one of the most excruciating things. And I know, I know uh, racing is painful and hard, but there's always that racing is you've got the competitors, you've got the crowds, you've got what's on the line. You can always find more in a race, but trying to find more when you're in a lab can be really difficult. <laughs> and I've heard, I've heard some of your scores. So are you willing to share with me what your VO2 max, what you've seen? Uh, so it's, it's normally like in, in the 80s, around 85. Mm. Uh, my PB on the bike is actually just above 90. I did like oh 90.3 something after the altitude camp in Sierra Nevada last year. Wow. And, wow. And it was also kind of all time skinny as well. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, that's the thing for people that don't know, you do divide it into your weight. So if you're incredibly lean, you, your score tends to go up. Um, but that, that, that's phenomenal. I mean, even mid eighties, mate, is uh, it puts you in. And I, I, I'm a big believer. You can't put in what God left out. And for me, the engine that we all receive um, genetically, you can build upon it, like you guys are doing, and and you can you can change it. They, you know, for the standard, the average layman out there, the average person, you can probably improve your VO two by up to about twenty percent. That's that's a, a rough guesstimate, but that's basically what you can kind of do. And for elite athletes like yourself, you're looking at these marginal gains of if I can improve it by, you know, one or two, I'm, it's extraordinary to be able to find that. And, uh, but with an 85, um, you know, for people that don't understand the average man, the average man is 60 millimoles. 60 is a good score for the average. Um, so when you're getting up into the seventies and potentially eighties, there's very few people in the world that are in the eighties and, um, and you know, here you are mid eighties and even that low nineties score, which is just absolutely almost freaky level. So that's, that's, it's nice to know and have in your back pocket as you go forward, because I think it, it demonstrates the engine that you do have. And so long as you can keep the chassis, you know, and by that I mean your, your muscular system and your skeletal system and nervous system, keep all of that in place, it's, it's really going to take you a long way. Um, so tell me about your family and, and their support. Have they been sort of, do they go to the races with you or are you kind of doing this as a loner? No, they, they, they used to follow me up on, they used to travel to some of the World Series event and watch me race. Mm. They have uh, obviously been a good support through my junior race, mm. driving to driving me to training practices and uh, kind of uh, supporting me in my choice of going all in for a sport. It has mm. never been like uh, a question mark, like whether I should take like uh, education instead or finding like a proper job or that they've always been supporting in the fact that um i've been willing to go all in for the sport and i think they found it really cool that i'm kind of making a living out of this 
Yeah, well, you're getting a tremendous education along the way as well. I mean, it's that's the thing. I, you know, I did degrees and things before really, you know, my my career took off, and I can honestly tell you that, you know, I raced professionally for for 26, 27 years, and the education I got along the way, the life lessons that I learned through sport, you know, that you learn the the emotional highs and lows, and and you learn so much about yourself along the way that the tremendous education you're getting um you'll be able to take you know with you forever like what you've heard so far then make sure you never miss a podcast by clicking the subscribe button now this show is only made possible by you the listener and if you'd like to support greg please visit the be with champions patreon page your support very much appreciated now back to the show so just going into detail now, I just how do you, do you guys measure? You seem to do a lot of data analysis and measurement. Are you doing that with your sleep and recovery as well? Yeah, <laughs> actually, for the last few months, I started using like uh, a new device to measure my sleep mm-hmm. and kind of to get a better tracking over. Because I think if you can track your sleep, it's easier to. Uh, increase it and kind of be more aware of getting enough hours in mm-hmm. so now i'm using both like uh, a wristband the whoop wristband but i also have like a, a divisor that's um that is uh, it's like uh it's like a watch you know you have on the on the table mm-hmm. that it's uh, uh sending i think it's like uh ultrasonic sound or something that's measuring mm-hmm. it's pointing towards me so it's measuring my my movement and my breathing rhythm and uh, basically everything in the room. So I get like a score during the night, and it it it's giving me like uh, it 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 shows like what kind of sleeping phase I'm at the different stages of the night when I'm falling to sleep, if I'm in a REM phase or non-REM phase. And I can even put it on like that it's waking me up when I'm in a good sleeping uh, phase. Wow. Sleeping light. So this is kind of a, a new devices that I've, I've been using for the last few weeks to kind of track the sleep. What is that called? What's that device called? That's, that's awesome. It's Songfi. Songfi? Somnofi, I think it's called. Some, I think it's called. <laughs> I don't know. They just told me to put it next to my bed. <laughs> I think it's not for sale yet. It's gotcha. A, it's a new project, but you can find it on the um, on the internet. Yeah. Somnofi. 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 And do you wear the? You said you wear a wristband. Not you don't wear one of the rings. What is the aura ring? Have you looked at the aura rings that people wear? It's probably the same. It's it's like on the wrist, like a watch. Gotcha. Yeah. It's double tracking almost. And you don't find having all these things make you more anxious about a, getting a good score? <laughs> so, you know. I think it's more in- interesting, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You kind of play with, uh, with uh, your sleeping routine, what you do like before you go to bed and then you can see yeah, yeah. you had that kind of cup of coffee four hours before bedtime if that's taking making you taking longer time before you're falling to sleep or if it's fine and what have you noticed what what things are what have you done that are giving you the better scores are there certain things that work better 
well, I haven't really found uh, out yet. I find, I find like having a good uh, sleeping routine is better. Like mm-hmm. that, I'm kind of relaxing before bedtime, and uh, also trying to avoid like the 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 blue light from the screen, etc. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I find that helping. Mm. Kind of, are you wearing uh, Are you wearing the blue light glasses, or you're just turning off the screen? I just turned off the screen. <laughs> yeah. um, I, I know that it's an interesting area for me, the, the whole sleep thing, because I think it's really, you know, we got to prioritize sleep. And uh, uh, for me, it's trying to figure out what is the best way to, to optimize your sleep. And I think you're, you're doing that. So I, we'll have to, you'll have to check back with me in, in a, a few months to tell me how you've, what are the best things working for your sleep? Because for me personally, it's like one of the things I struggle with is, is I need the room to be really cold. But what I probably need to do is just get one of those, those cooling mats that you can sleep on. Um, there's a brand called Chili or something like that. And they can just bring your body temperature down that allow you to, to, to find that right level. So I'm, I'm curious as to what you find out, because I think it's something that you'll be able to take with you forever in terms of optimizing that sleep, which obviously helps your recovery. Um, so what about nutrition? You said you work with a nutritionist. What are they, can you tell me specifics of your nutrition, both in your training and racing and what you found out that's working for you specifically? Uh, no, it's more about having like a, a variation. And also I think the key for me is to, to adapt my my nutrition and intake come to what I'm training. Mm. So if I'm, for example, training heavily and a lot of volume, I have to increase the volume mm. in nutrition as well. And then I tend to still feel hunger when I'm kind of dropping down the volume. But then mm. my needs for calories ain't that bad, that big. So then I kind of need to be really aware of kind of uh, dropping down on calories as well. Mm. So it's more about uh, that I'm following the the training load in the mm. calories as well. Kind of and what about the types of calories. the types of macronutrients that you're using in terms of carbohydrates, proteins, fats? Are you? It's a lot of it, carbs. A lot, a of, lot carbs, of carbs. A lot of carbs and uh, some proteins, but I think uh, carbs is kind of the f- uh, fuel you need to have for getting the training done. That's mm-hmm. that's like a limitation. When it comes to doing the key sessions or the high intensity training sessions, then it's the normally the carbohydrate uh, storage that's your limitation, mm-hmm. and that's what you need to always have, uh, or that's what you need to kind of fill up. That, that's you know, it was interesting when I was sort of wrapping up my career in 2013, 14, 15, even 16. Is I'd started adding in a few. Um, I did Ironman a couple of times in 2012, which was stupid, but I, um, I was doing some, some longer events and I was really starting to enjoy, um, doing the whole fat metabolizing and, and going out and I do these five hour rides just with a couple of bottles of water and ride through the Colorado Rocky mountains and, and felt fantastic. I got to the point that I, I could go forever. But then when I wanted to combine it, when I wanted to get ready for, for a short course race or Olympic distance race, I'd, I'd go down to do sort of whatever my workout would be, say 15 by three minute efforts or 10 by three minute efforts um, on the trails running. And I, it was almost like my body wouldn't allow me to get out of fat metabolizing type aerobic. It wouldn't allow me to push where I wanted to go. And I used to come home and I say, Laura, look, I, it's amazing how you need the carbs, 
for your body to quickly be able to respond and find the energy when it needs it and that fat metabolizing seemed to work really well for when I'm just staying very very aerobic but when I wanted that power when I wanted to be able to do something more explosive I found it as a real limiter and my body just wouldn't allow me I couldn't breathe properly um, and it just wouldn't let me go over into that anaerobic type work that I needed to be doing to get that leg speed happening yeah that, that's the hard thing like your body used to adapt really quickly so mm. if you're training without carbs and just burning fat, your body tends to adapt and uh, being better at that area or in that intensity. Mm. Mm. You got to see the big picture. Yeah, no, for sure. That's fascinating. So let's just go into a little bit more detail of your training if we can, um, because I'm fascinated by the way you guys are working. and I'm loving the detailed approach that you, you, you're taking along with your coach and, and the rest of your team. And, and so when we look at your overall kind of training, can you give me an idea of kind of aerobic type work or low intensity work to how much you're doing that high intensity work? From what I understand with you guys, you do a lot of volume um, and then touch on the very hard work uh, for periods of time. Is that how it kind of works with you or are you doing more in the middle? No, I think we do a lot of volume and then mm. our high-intensity session isn't really that high-intensity. It's more about working with the duration. And so instead of going out, for example, on the track and smashing four or five or six K, like I think the British does. Mm. We used to do more around 12, 13 or even 14 K mm-hmm. on the track, but just mm-hmm. a little bit slower and mm-hmm. just in the right intensity zone with the lactate measuring. And so we are making sure that we are staying in, in the right intensity zone rather than just smashing the, the mm. track. So f- I think that's like the, main difference and also when we are going out for easy training sessions we have like even there we have like a lactate uh, zone where we can be inside or we can we can we can kind of go as hard as we can for the easy ride as mm-hmm. long as we're not increasing the lactate mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. we have a really kind of good understanding of uh of the the energy system in the training mm. so i think me, it's mm. uh, way harder uh, i mean way bigger like overall and then the, it's kind of a different way to approach the high intensity sessions i think the way you're approaching it is very much like the arthur lydiard model so arthur lydiard was a famous coach from new zealand in the 50s, 60s, 70s, um, did a lot of work with the Finnish runners of the of the um, 70s and 80s, actually. And my coach that I had for a number of years, Brett Sutton, used a lot of the Arthur Lydiard model for our training. And when I left Brett, I started I studied Arthur Lydiard's work, and then um, also Emil Zadapek, who won the 5K, 10K, and marathon at the 1952 Olympics, and the kind of work they were doing. And it sounds to me that you guys are doing that same kind of philosophy and and the what what I would describe it is there's a lot of aerobic work done, and and it's not long slow distance; it's long best easy pace distance. And what I mean by best easy is you're still in that threshold, that area that you're talking about, that that 
low intensity, but it doesn't mean slow. Yeah. It just it just means that you're not building lactate, and that I, we got to the point, uh, you know, my long run that I do every Tuesday, and this is when I was focused on Olympic distance and short course racing was. It was a two-hour run done best easy pace, and I'd run around that 340 to 345K pace for two hours, but it wasn't hard. You know what I mean? It was, it, it was hard in terms of time on the legs, and it was a long time out, but it was never pushing. And You're still going on fat. You're still going on fat. You're still able to have a little bit, like if you and I were running together, I'd be saying, oh, mate, there's a gate coming up. We better, you know, you go first and I'll run in behind you. And that's about as much as I'd say. It wouldn't be full conversation, but it would be at least that we're we're moving along. And and I'll never forget when we were kind of uh, – I was training once with Javier Gomez and and we were doing this long run. And uh, and, and it, like I said, we were probably around that sort of three, three, 340, 345K pace. And, and a group of other athletes ran past us and we were talking to them later and they said, oh, you guys were doing intervals. And I said, no, we were doing our long run. And it was – they were like, what? You guys were really moving and we're like well no it was just a matter of that we were doing it in the we were just ticking it along and um it wasn't hard training it was just best aerobic effort and and even like you said on the on the the track workouts the glory sessions that a lot of coaches love to have are these kind of like all out you know let's do 10 800s or, or not even that many eight 800s flat out and I never understood that as an athlete myself. I was like, well, look, if I can run 1K in a 245K pace, why? what if I could get myself so aerobically fit that I could run 10 back-to-back holding 252, you know, only seven seconds slower per K? And so my my mindset as an athlete and when I started to win more often and the way I approached my training was let's build this aerobic endurance. And that's what you guys are doing. And are you doing that in the swim, the bike and the run? You're doing it across the board? Yeah, we, we tend to train very similar on all three disciplines mm. as it's more about intensity versus duration rather than anything mm-hmm. else. Oh, I love it, mate. That's that's fantastic. It's, and it definitely shows on the scoreboard with the, with the three of you coming out and uh, and doing so successful. For people who don't know, you guys, yourself, Casper uh, and um, Gustav went one, two, three at the Bermuda World Series race back in was that 2017 18 2018 that that must have been a real thrill except you didn't get to win you were second right (laughs) well yeah that was so kind of funny you know going out on that uh, final lap and turning (laughs) and going coming back on the run like a k and a half left and we were kind of running one two three and then we saw like the hold main pack of runners coming towards (laughs) us (laughs) (laughs) seeing kind of their face expression was kind of uh it was good that's awesome did you guys say say anything to each other like was there any comments like yeah okay may may the best man win or was it just was it a did you know who who had the better sprint and and who was likely to to win not really like I, i was pulling I was running with Gustav. Casper was uh, way up the front. So mm. I was running with Gustav and I was, it was quite windy. So I was pulling, I think I did like 9K straight in, in the front. And then with 1K to go, he tried to pass me and I was like, no way. <laughs> <laughs> this is my second place at least. Yeah. 
So uh, yeah. luckily I managed to get it. I sprinted down the, the downhill. But the thing is, the before the race, uh, we 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 used to kind of go through the course and kind of speak about the different tactics. And mm. I told them like that I, that I would attack in this downhill with a lap and have to go. And then when I was running with Gustav, he suddenly knew that I would attack there. So when I tried to run away with three k, <laughs> he was ready. He, he was ready, and he knew <laughs> that he just has to be with me for another five hundred meters, and then he will have my back for yeah. <laughs> regretting. Well, it's a good lesson to learn. I, I'm sure you're keeping your cards a little closer to your chest now, going into races. Just going, maybe I won't share everything. You know, I'm, I'm happy maybe, my teammates do well, but <laughs> maybe not uh, sharing where I'm going to attack. Like that's final. <laughs> Yeah, yeah and how, I mean, I, how does that work with all you guys? And and how do you keep you? You know, you seem to all get along pretty well. And I mean, it, it's hard when you're a professional athlete and you're all so desperate to be the greatest and desperate to win world titles and Olympic medals. And how does it, on a daily basis? You know, I think that can work pretty well. And you're able to manage that all the way into the races pretty well. Yeah, I would say so. And I think yeah. uh, because this is something we've been working together uh, towards for so many years, I think we almost feel like if s- someone else is performing well, it's kind of mm. also we are part of it. So mm-hmm. it kind of makes it easier. It's not like we are necessarily racing against each other. It's more us mm. against them. Yeah. So that, that that makes it easier. So if Gustav and Kasper is racing well, racing well it's something i'm really happy for yeah they're your brothers and and uh, also easier when you have i I think it's better to have two of the best triathletes on my team and sharing Mm. their inside with me and i'm sharing with them because that's making all three of us better instead of Mm. just trying to be kind of uh, having uh, holding every uh, secrets by myself no for sure none of us will improve Mm. It's better to kind of climb that uh, well together. Mm. And are there any women in Norway coming through the program? Because I, I know with the Olympics coming up, well, when it, when they come, um, the team relay is now going to be an option. And I would have thought you guys would have a strong team, definitely on the men's side. But do you have any women racing for Norway at the moment? Yeah, we have one girl who is actually qualified for Olympics or basically lot mm. Miller. And then we have a second girl who is now training in Bergen. And we were actually looking at potentially racing the Valencia race and mm. see if we could get one of the three slots to qualify for the relay in mm. uh, in early May. But now everything has been no, of postponed. Course. Of course. But that, but that is on the radar for you guys because I, I think that – that medal, I think, is going to be rather spectacular, and it'd be it'd be a shame to not see Norway as sort of the this new country that's come onto the world of triathlon to to not have a team in there would be almost a little disappointing. So I hope you guys can can qualify a team because I think it'd be fantastic to see. Well, hopefully you, but you've got two pretty strong <laughs> teammates, two other men on the, the that could possibly take you take your spot on that team. But I think that that Olympic gold medal would be one that I think would be pretty treasured to be able to share it with a team. But I think now with the Olympics being postponed to next year, I think we have, I think that's a good chance. 
Yeah. <laughs> in terms of the mixed relay, because then we have one more year for mm. for both Steen and Lotte to, and obviously us guys as well, but for them to kind of step up, mm. then we can have a really strong team uh, for the qualification event next year. So that, yeah. that, that uh, could be a good thing. I, I think there's a lot of a lot of athletes out there that are obviously bummed and regret. You know, it's just the way the world is right now. But there's also a lot out there that are going. Phew! I needed the extra year. <laughs> you know, I I need the I need this time, uh, and that's a great example of so going. Hang on, if we can have this extra time, there's a there's a really good chance we could be very competitive. Come, you know, well, what looks like 2021 Tokyo I, I, Olympics. I guess you have. Uh both group you have the older generation with maybe mm. javier and alistair and mm. kind of it's not like they're getting a year younger with no with i saw a post from uh nicholas spirig you know who you know she's got three kids this would be a fifth olympics and, and i think she said something along the lines of you know i'll talk to my team about what we're going to do because you know i mean she's in my eyes she's still not old so i i kind of go of course you're going to hang in there don't be silly but you know it's it is like you said for javier that wants to probably get back to iron man and i know alistair probably wants to give iron man a bit more of a crack before the years tick on mm-hmm. uh you know they're kind of thinking oh i wish we could just get this olympics done but at the same time they might javier and, and alistair both, both might need another year to get their short speed back a, a bit you know because iron man does sort of does sort of hampen that. It does slow you down on fractions. So I think they'll be excited to at least get some speed back. And uh, you guys, uh, you mentioned you do these altitude training camps. How, how do you put together an altitude training camp? How long are you up there for? And sort of uh, what kind of work are you doing up there? Is it the same kind of work and you're just slowing down? And, and, and how long are your camps? So normally we have three altitude camps per year. So we go, we start off the season. Or straight after off season, we go to Sierra Nevada. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, for example, last year after the Super League in Malta, I went up to Sierra Nevada again. Mm-hmm. So then I've been there. Then I was there two weeks before Malta, and then three weeks after, and that's at two thousand three hundred meters elevation. Mm-hmm. Then we do basically the same training as we do at sea level, or maybe a little bit more threshold than actually race pace mm. but uh, and and we do like a lot of this with lactate control mm. so we go on in on the intensity and not like on power we're not training on power but more having the right threshold now i mean the, the right lactate mm-hmm. so the uh, metabolic uh, training is is to correct mm. and, and, then, and that, that lactate threshold is that uh, is your pace then what what kind of percentage drop off do you look at when you're when you're up there mine is barely nothing wow. like after after a week i may be doing the same as i do at t level wow. and i think that, that's because i have like really big lungs so i'm mm. i'm getting all the, i still get like a lot of oxygen in and out of the system mm. so the other guys they tend to drop a little bit more but i can be pretty much on the same power so then I can maybe do three, three oh eight maybe three ten for threshold on the track mm-hmm. for two or three k's, mm-hmm. and on the bike I can be 
at the end of a training camp, I'm normally just above 400 mm-hmm. watts. Uh, so it's pretty much the same. And then when I, when I go down to sea level again, I kind of feel much sharper and kind of the muscle is kind of just more uh, responding much better again. Mm. And then we have another training camp now that's supposed to be at this time of the year in April, again in Sierra Nevada for another four weeks. And then we tend to spend the summer in Forme in France at mm-hmm. the 1800 meters. So mm. that's about 10, 10, 11 weeks in the altitude. That's awesome. Yeah. No, we we experimented a lot with altitude over the years. You know, back in two thousand and three, we did. We were living in Victoria, Canada, but we did the the altitude tent. So we just we just slept basically slept high, trained low, um, and, and found that very useful. And then we moved to you know Boulder, Colorado, which is not super high. It's about that five and a half thousand feet, which is uh, around sixteen hundred meters, I think. Um, but a lot of the mountains around, so so Boulder, if you don't know, is kind of on the where all the almost the desert, the Kansas desert meets the Rocky Mountains. So it's right at the foothills there. And so all your training you can do is go straight up, you know, and you can do a lot of there's a uh, the peak to peak highway up the top of the mountain there. And most of that ride is at about three thousand meters, and you and you just ride along this this ridge line way up high. And I used to do a lot of my interval work up there when I really wanted to to increase power, but it was, and then I would, you know, when I started getting a bit older and everything else, I used to have the altitude tent in the house in Boulder and I'd sleep at 12,000 feet and then, you know, do my training at that five and a half, six thousand feet. And so we, we experimented with it over years. And, and what we learned is that everybody responds differently to altitude. So it's very, very difficult to say what works for one works for the other. And, and the amount of time that one needs at altitude compared to another one and how they respond. And even when you've just figured that out, you're a year older and your body's changed a little bit. And so then it's back to doing the testing, like you're saying, and figuring out what does and doesn't work. Because the way we look at altitude is it's an extra stress on the body. So training is already a stress, you know, and and recovering from that training. And the other stresses, the environmental stresses that we all have on us, whether it be, you know, EMFs or toxins in our food or whatever it is, our body is always trying to overcome stress and when we do when we overcome the stress we get stronger and so the altitude work that you're doing is an extra stress that your body seems to from what you're telling me respond very very quickly to saying okay you're going to stress me out it only takes me a week to i've got a grip on this now and, and now i'm stronger for it so it's fascinating to me how different athletes and and you probably are seeing it firsthand with the rest of your team and how maybe they respond differently to how you respond and and that kind of thing. But I think that also has with what kind of, uh, what my kind of uh, limitation physical wise, for example, I have a very strong heart, very strong lungs, but my weakness is more uh, in the muscles that I'm not able to, it's a mitochondria. So uh, I'm like, I have a, I'm able to kind of pump around enough oxygen, but my limitation is more in the muscles. So that's why mm. I'm kind of, uh, that's why I'm still having enough oxygen that's kind of going to the muscles, but it's more mm. the muscle that's the problem. So then 
the fact that it's less oxygen is in the air isn't really the limitation, even though mm-hmm. I'm going up. So the other guys who is maybe not having that kind of same capacity, they will struggle more. Mm. So do you notice it with on the recovery side? Like you, you, are you stiffer after being at altitude? Are your legs just not feeling as sharp? Not really. So I, I, I just find the altitude training to be quite similar. It's just, it's just a nice place to be on training camp. Mm. And again, <laughs> I, I don't get the same percentage increasing as the other guys in the team. Mm. So I get yeah. maybe five or six percent of increase of hemoglobin compared mm. to other guys who's maybe up in ten. Gotcha, gotcha. That's fascinating to me. I love all of that. I want to just shift gear a little bit and, and talk about your your mental approach to what you you're doing in in your racing. And are you a somebody that likes to that spends a lot of time visualizing and preparing for races? Are you somebody that uses word affirmations um, or anything like that to sort of get yourself ready? Uh, yeah, for sure. Uh, I like to go bef- before a race, I like to go through the course, have a look, especially if, if the race has been in the past, I like to have a look uh, on the previous uh, live coverage to get like, uh, get the the course kind of refreshed in in my mind, so when I'm out training, I can kind of visualize and see different kind of scenarios that mm. I will might be be seeing in the race. And also, when I've got to a race course or travel to a race, I like to go through the course many many times before the race, mm. just to get like. Uh, as I'm riding around the course, I'm kind of looking at different scenarios of what can happen. And uh, uh, that makes it easier when I get to the race because then I've kind of gone through most of the scenarios. Mm-hmm. How did that work with uh, Lasan last year? Had you visualized that performance? Uh, not necessarily like attacking like like that but we, we went through for example the bike course many times before the race probably 10 10 times before the race we did a loop and uh, around and around and around and that's giving us kind of uh, an idea that we feel very familiar in the course mm. that we know the hill very well and i find that if if i know the if i know the course very well I find it easier mentally to go through it as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If you're going through, uh, through a, a very new 5K loop. So it, since it feels so familiar, it feels kind of, the loop mm. feels kind of shorter. Of course. Do you, uh, when you, when you attacked in Lausanne last year on the run, you, you basically gave it two big digs, one very early on and then one, you know, a bit later. And, they caught you back up after the first one and it was like, oh, you know, even the commentators were like, oh, okay, Christian's been caught, you know. It, it's as per usual. He's gone out like a bang and they've, they've caught him and, you know, he's going to probably end up on the podium or top five, but, you know, he's caught. And But you went again and I think – and I, and they weren't able to go with you. Was there a strategy in place before the race for that kind of 
attacking behavior or was it just you just went by feel during that run the funny thing is that i didn't really attack the first time then i was (laughs) (laughs) i I had a a good transition yeah Uh, i felt 100 percent fresh from that bike course so i had like no fatigue at all from that bike course and i think a lot of the other guys were struggling after the t2 Mm. so i was just going out trying to run relaxed trying to get to that yeah i'm not sure if you know that there was like a very steep uphill Mm -hmm. almost. i know i know the course well i i raced there many times yeah well similar courses any but i know that road yeah (laughs) so uh, i just wanted to get into that core into that hill uh as easy as possible so i could kind of jog up that hill instead of being sprinting up because mm. normally I find uphill running to be way harder than downhill. Mm, me too. Probably. I know exactly what you mean. <laughs> because of, uh, yeah, because of the KGs. So uh, I, I just wanted to, when I first got like a 10 meter gap, I just wanted to keep it until the hill so I could relax and run in my pace and let them mm. catch me. So uh, eventually after the hill, they kind of caught me and I was kind of fine. Because I didn't want to run 10k by myself because that's really hard mentally mm-hmm. to be chased down for 10k. Mm-hmm. I've already tried that before, like in Montreal. And I know I didn't want to bring up Montreal in this <laughs> with 1k to go. So I know I didn't want to do that again. So that's why I've kind of wanted to be running in the group, relaxed. And I think just before they caught me, I think Mario was kind of picking up the pace as well so then uh, he kind of started uh, dragging out the field Mm. and almost halfway through when it was suddenly just myself Vincent Luis and Mario left I was just looking around and thinking they're actually struggling now and then in the next time we went down the hill Mm. I was just suddenly going for it on the on the way up on the on the way up I was thinking okay next time in the downhill I'm gonna <laughs> that's true isn't it next time next time yeah. not this time but then just I don't know you know instinct you just go mm-hmm. and then yeah. uh, suddenly I found myself I don't know 15 seconds up the front but then uh, a few k later I was just regretting like no way <laughs> this, 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 this is I'm not gonna hold in. Um, I'm dead basically, and uh, this is gonna be another uh, oh, yeah. replay of Montreal. Mario is gonna catch me. He's already starting to close down the gap, but then luckily I managed to turn it around again. Yeah, that. I mean, it really was an extraordinary. Right? And and I know that you would have had that feeling for people that don't know. 2018 Montreal. Um, you raced a very courageous race, um, like you always do. You went for it and opened up the gap on the bike. Um, with a, you had a couple of other guys there with you, and I, I forgive me if I I forget their names right now. But you you basically got a one minute gap, but you had the the chase group in it. You know, Maria Moller and Richard Murray and and Jake Burtwistle and some of the big runners of the sport chasing you down and. You are one of the big runners of the sport, but you had done all that work on the bike and uh, you, you ran incredibly well. But yes, Mario Moli got you with like 
one one kilometer to go and and um took the wind from you and it was one of those where it was like ah oh, you know <laughs> so so i can imagine when you're in lasan going please don't happen again please don't happen again but the thing is in montreal i think uh, like the year before i was in the breakaway with javier and johnny and got second there and then the thing is if i i think i was running pretty much the same pace as javier did the year before yeah. But then Mario was just closing down 120. <laughs> yeah. So he was running like 30 seconds faster than everyone else did the year before. I know he ran a, I think I, I think I saw it. He did run like a mid 29s or something off the bike. And Montreal is not a fast race with the U turns and the steep little pitch hill that you have through the old part of Montreal. And it's, it's not a fast 10K, I would have said, you know. For, but he he did run very well there. <laughs> I think on the average day that 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 would be enough for taking the win. Mm. But then he just had like maybe one of his run off his life. I know, little shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, mate, I just want to wrap up a little bit. Have you got any sort of gear recommendations and things that you can share with any of the listeners or any uh, nutritional recovery bits and pieces that people should be doing i mean we've gone through a lot already you've you've given so so much but if we've missed anything just just let me know well i'm not sure like it's a good time to plug your sponsors yeah Yeah, i'm lucky to have like i remember when i was junior and kind of looking up about my dreaming sponsors you know who who i want to have and i've actually been lucky to get basically all of them now so i'm quite lucky to have like working with the biggest brands like red bull and specialized and oakley and trim and getting like all all the support from them mm. so obviously go out and check out all my sponsors <laughs> yes that's the best stuff <laughs> that's great mate and so you've mentioned sierra nevadas where else in the world would you recommend people train uh, is bergen norway a, a training mecca for triathlon now is that a place people should go train uh, i think it's it's not like ideal for training camps it's not it's more uh it's more the fact that we are training together here we're having like a good group mm. Is kind of the key rather than mm. uh, the weather. For example, it's raining two thirds of the year in Bergen. Oh, man, so you, I don't... you don't travel to Bergen because you want to <laughs> and you ride. You travel to Bergen because you want to get strong. Oh, so, mate. <laughs> so we, I think that's, that's one of the reasons why we're traveling on training camps that often as well to get like a break from the rain. Mm. We used to go to Sierra Nevada. Uh, Earlier this year, we went to Thailand, which was really good. Phuket, mm. staying there outside of the center, really good. And uh, also Rio Major in Portugal. So we are trying to kind of mix up like the places we've been to mm. the last five or six years with some new new ones. So I would, yeah. I would love to go to more places in the US, for example, over the mm. next. Uh, olympic cycle yeah well you're always welcome to come to boulder it's a it's a bit of a triathlon type mecca i mean we end up moving to boulder back in 2006 uh, we had been training in victoria canada which is also a magnificent part of the world to train and where the 2000 olympic gold medalist simon whitfield lives and uh so we spent a lot of time in those two places but 
Boulder, we liked, you know, if you enjoy riding your bike, the mountains around Boulder are just absolutely stunning. And and Boulder as a town is very fitness orientated. So I think they say like one in six people is a massage therapist. And, you know, it's a, it's a very organic green type place for training and great running trails. And so, you know, that, those kind of places could be, could be interesting for you if you ever want to get over there. But, mate, this has been um, – a real thrill. I know we can't really discuss what 2020 has in store for you because we don't know. I don't think anybody knows. So normally at this point, I'd be asking you <laughs> what, what this year holds, but I understand that it's a little bit of just playing it by ear for now. And how, how can people follow you and, and, you know, on social media and websites and stuff? Well, I'm most active on Instagram and Strava under mm-hmm. Christian Blue and Christian Blumfeldt. Okay. So... I tend to post all my sessions on Strava and and post like where I am on Instagram. That's what I'm most yeah. active at. Mate, it's been a real joy and, and you've been such an open book. You know, there's so much, you know, the listeners can can learn from the way you're approaching the sport. And I, I, I truly love your intensity and the way that you're just optimizing everything you can in your performance. And I truly believe, you know, and one of the reasons I really wanted you on this show, um, and we lined this show up knowing the Olympics was coming, but I, I wanted to make sure that I, I'm interviewing the Olympic champion before the Olympics happened. So <laughs> I, I wanted to, no, no, I don't mean that by pressure, but I think there's yourself, I put you in the, the mix of, you know, two or three guys that, that could win that gold medal. And I'd hate to have not interviewed you or chatted with you before the games, but even with the games a bit delayed, it's been a real thrill for me to just uh, have this long conversation with the next generation of, of the sport, the wonderful sport of triathlon. So thanks for joining me, mate. Thank, thank you so much for having me. It's been yeah. a pleasure. Yeah, yeah. And thanks, everybody, for listening. And uh, until next time. All right, mate, stay on the line and we'll, uh, we'll catch up. Thanks a lot for listening to Be With Champions. If you enjoyed the show, your support would truly be appreciated. You can visit the Be With Champions Patreon page or you can subscribe with your podcast app of choice. Don't miss the next episode, so subscribe and be notified. For show notes, if you want to know more, please visit bennettendurance.com. I'm Phil Liggett and on behalf of Greg Bennett, here's to the next time and I hope you will join Greg again very soon.